Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Arsenal Beat, the only Arsenal podcast which brings together the journalists and reporters who cover the club on a regular basis. I'm Simon Collings from the Evening Standard and I'm joined by Nick Ames of The Guardian and PA Media's Mark Man Bryans. So we've had a quiet weekend uh, to unpack. I think if we if we take it chronologically, guys, let, let's start with Friday night. Um, the protest outside the Emirates Stadium. All three of us were there. A uh, good few hours before kickoff. Nick, what did did you make of it? I mean, it was always difficult with those sort of protests, particularly in this you know socially distant age, to gauge what is actually going to happen and what's it going to be like. There's a lot of noise on Twitter. Do you think it lived up to? the expectation from what we were expecting from the fan base? I think it did, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think you and I arrived at, at about the same time, didn't we? And, and there was a few hundred sort of milling around and, and you thought, okay, the numbers are, are growing quite rapidly. I think we ended up with probably maybe a touch north of 3,000 people there. And I, I think, um, firstly, I've got to say, social distancing stuff to one side Pe- people did conduct themselves peacefully and and well and there was no menace or violence or anything in the air i think people just wanted to come out be together and make a point i think they made it very well they made it very vociferously loudly um you could hear it for probably about the first half hour of the game in inside as well which was quite a surreal feeling and and may have been for the players and staff too um but no i am um, I think it was important that people used the moment and used the momentum of the final of, of the previous few days to to um, to unite and cohere like that and come out. And yeah, I I, um, I think in terms of a protest living up to its billing, um, I I think it did. And I and I I think well done to to um, to those who showed up and made their point and did so in in what I think was a positive way. Mm. I mean, Mark, we were we were there chatting a bit, you know, sort of an hour into the, into the protest, and the vibe I think we both had was how I think because people haven't been to games, they haven't been to stadiums, to matches. A lot of those fans there just seemed happy to be together, you know, to be all in the same spot and all united in something. And as Nick says, there was no sort of you know vandalizing the stadium, trying to trash the place up. It was more just fans having something that united them and being together, which they haven't been for, for a year or so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we made the point a few times, didn't we, To as we started growing as a group of journalists there covering it, I think had it not been a Friday evening and the sun was shining and I think it presented a lot of people with a chance to meet with their friends and have a beer and, as Nick mentioned, almost not have to adhere to those social distancing. And that's not to take away why the majority were there to protest. I think, you know, they've not been great on the pitch lately, but if we were giving trophies out for protests I think Arsenal would be right up there wouldn't they I think they gathered in quite big numbers there was no real angst was there there was no animosity between the fans because they're all there for one one shared cause and that was that was quite clear I mean we saw effigies which you know arguably well actually unquestionably take it a little bit too far obviously but I think it just it just showed that that groundswell that this Europe this European Super League brought up again, all those ill feelings of, of the cronky ownership and the mistakes and the mismanagement that fans believe has happened just all came rushing back to the surface with that with the Super League stuff we read about and reported on last week and that the fans the fans clearly aren't happy about. And this this it almost projected a new catalyst for them to, to bring forward their unhappiness at, at the situation outside the club at, at least. Yeah, I mean I mean Mark, do you do you think that this was always 
Arsenal fans will know, uh, you know, who listen to this will know all about the Cronkies. But from, if anyone's listening to this who isn't an Arsenal fan from the outside, do you, do you think that this was a case of the Super League just poking the Hornets nest that had already been built up and it was it was the spark that lit it rather than, you know, this wasn't this wasn't really about the Super League really, was it? I think this was just what kicked off what had always been bubbling away and had gone quiet. And that... Yeah, exactly that. I mean, like we said, I think the Cronkies, have, similar to the Glazers, I think they're quite akin if you look at them really like that. The fan bases certainly feel very similar about those owners. Uh, they're absentee owners a lot of the time. There's question marks over over why they're involved with the club and you know the financial ambiguity around all that. And I just think for, for both, I think they're so comparative really in the, in this scenario, United and Arsenal. And it, it, we saw that with the the most uh, ferocious of the of the um, protests. Really, we saw the United fans breaking into the training ground and, and doing their thing. And I think that all stems from a history now of being unhappy with the ownership. It isn't just it didn't just start last week with. Super League, whereas you look at Chelsea and Abramovich and City and Mansur, that relationship's been positive largely since those owners came in, but that flipped briefly last week. But for Arsenal and United, it is a long history of not wanting these specific owners in charge of their football club, and that's why we saw what we did on Friday evening. Mm. I mean, Nick, the you know, Mark makes the point there about Abramovich and Mansur, they obviously have the shield if you like with which to protect themselves of you know they can look at the investment they've made the trophies they won the Cronkies obviously don't have that with Arsenal um, but do you think they will have you know noticed or taken much from these protests we've got to appreciate they are obviously based in America they have history of moving the Rams to LA they're used to to a bit of fan backlash aren't they yeah um, they are and I mean Josh Cronky obviously faced the the fans for them on I think it was a Thursday night and Talk, talk to good game about engaging more and, you know, realising that maybe from the start there'd never been trust and making promises such as I promised, I, I think he promised Arsenal would never play a home game abroad, which seemed like a, a fairly bold one in the, in, in the current climate. So, so look, he's talked a good game on, on Thursday, which I guess was all he could do on that particular day. I mean, the, um, but you have to look over the past 10 years and say exactly what you just said. What is there to back up anything around the ownership materially, both in terms of on the pitch, maybe even sort of the, you know, the, the, the fan experience, the engagement with the fans, the money that now is or isn't being put in, the constant sort of slightly downward shift in standards and expectations every year. And you're right, they don't have that backlog of at least some kind of credible progress or success to to underpin what's happening. And I think, um, yeah, one one phrase I heard from more than one supporter on the Friday night, I was, I was going around doing that journalistic thing of trying to get a few box pops and stuff like that. And the first couple of people were like, oh, I'm just here for a beer. Um, but once I got them talking, it was a, um, I kept hearing the phrase tipping point. Um, you know what I mean? And it was quite interesting. Um, one guy said, you know, they've been ravaging us for the last 10 years his words not mine um but now they're trying to do this to the rest of football as well and we can't take it and okay this was just the way one guy put it but i thought it was interesting this that it was almost that arsenal or people associated with arsenal were now about to have such a detrimental impact on a broader scale of the game reputationally and also in just in terms of creating this closed shop super league almost closed shop super league and that was the point at which people thought, no, we're not having this. 
And I thought they expressed that really well and really concisely and, and, and eloquently on, um, on Friday night. Um, I mean, we'll come back to the to the Cronkies later on in, in the podcast, Mark. But if we talk briefly about the football, which we, we haven't really done as journalists for the past in what, week or 10 days or so with everything going on off the pitch, the game on Friday against Everton, you know, it's another home defeat, a pretty awful error from Leno, one of the worst I can remember him making in, in, in his Arsenal career. Um, Arteta said afterwards he didn't see any impact from the protest, Tuchel was different after that Brighton game. Saying, did you think there was any impact from it, Mark, in the way the team played? Because we could hear it obviously inside the ground, you know, fireworks going off, and you know, Arteta looked a bit more agitated, but he, he didn't want to use it as an excuse, perhaps. Yes, yeah, and it's a difficult one, really, because I do think if you, if you look at it on paper, you think, oh, you know, you can hear the fans outside; it's going to be an issue. But I think I think largely they played no better or worse than they had against Fulham, what, six days earlier or five days earlier, whatever it was. I think that they're just on a bit of a downward, excuse me, they're on a bit of a downward trajectory again at the moment. And it, whether it's because, you know, you've got Noah Bamiang and Lacazette, let's be honest, if you take those kind of names out of any of the teams in the league, bar probably those top few sides, Manchester City probably are alone in that, you're going to have worse performances. And I don't think for a second... It was anything to do with the protest. Maybe they were a bit unsettled by the Europa, uh, Super League stuff during the week. Maybe they were unsettled having to get to the stadium. As we know, I think it was five hours before kickoff on Friday. But what do you do once you're in the ground? You know, they probably put their feet up for a bit. It's, it's not it's not the end of the world, is it? We're not locking them away in, in a cell somewhere waiting for the game. They're in the Emirates. You know, it's plush. They've, they've had access to everything they wanted to see. And I just think, I, fair play to Arteta for not pinning it on that. I think he... He knew he couldn't really get away with that. He knew the standards just weren't where they needed to be, which, let's be honest, as, as three have covered a lot of Arsenal games this season, it hasn't been there for a lot of those games. And this was just another example of that. I think it also was an example that, in my opinion, he hasn't got a strong enough squad to do what is being expected of him at the moment. I really don't. I think, what, ninth in the table with, with the squad depth in particular that he's got, is about right for Arsenal when you look at the teams that are above them at the moment. Look at those starting 11s. I remember saying to you, Simon, in the stadium, mm-hmm. looked at those starting 11s on Friday night, that Everton team is better than Arsenal's team. And I know you can add Lacazette and it would make it different, but those two teams on Friday night, I would have said, I'd expect Everton to almost win more comfortably than they did looking at those teams. Mm. I mean, Nick, obviously everything around Friday was the anger directed at Cronkite, the ownership. Arteta, other than, you know, I think there are a few voices on social media who are starting to raise concerns and their displeasure at the team's form hasn't really come in for much criticism. Where, where do you stand on, on Arteta? I think Mark makes a good point there about issues with squad depth. He's obviously having to deal with the pandemic. Um, do you think he should be under more pressure? Do you think he's under the right amount of pressure? I'm going to keep the jury out until I see what happens in the Europa League. I think if you can salvage something material and really really positive out of a season like this, then then you've done well. But if they're not in Europe next season, then he he will have had a year and a half, a year and three quarters in charge. And then it does start to be on him a bit. And I agree about the squad. I think, you know, Eddie Nketiah, for all, all he's a good poacher, is it? It is a massive drop-off, I'm afraid, from what is already there. Pepe, still not consistent enough. When you have three or four players missing at Arsenal, you feel it. 
a lot more than you feel at any of the other self-styled big six. So I take Mark's point there, and I, 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 I think he needs for summer to um to ship out a lot of squad squad. I, I don't know it was like the phrase Deadwood, but squad players who I think you will get money for, and let's see what he can put in after that in terms of players who um, who can compete properly for places and players who when you put them in for you know Obama Yang or Lacazette if they're out or or whoever you don't notice too much difference. Um I felt just just on, on, on his reaction on Friday I felt um I thought the severity of his broadside against VAR at the end was a little bit telling to be honest. Like I I mean, I think we've all talked about, about VAR itself enough. It's it, it's a pain in, in in its current form. I don't think it should be about. Um, but I think there was some projection there. I think he'd had a very stressful week, a, a very stressful time. It was also a result that did basically finally close off one avenue of European qualification. And if if you took his quotes about it out of context, he could easily have, have been talking about what happened during the week. Um, and um, not that any of us would ever take a quote out of context, but but you see the point. I think I I think um, there was a bit of pent up frustration coming out, and it was channeled through VAR. I don't know what what you guys thought, but I definitely perceived that at the time. Mm. I mean, I dare I say it. I thought it was a bit Jose Mourinho esque of. You know, come out and be like, look over here. Look, this this was the problem. When in reality, you know, the real problem was Leno making a huge gaffe and Arsenal not being that clinical and and as tacky as as they could have been. I mean, Mark, a last a last point on this section is, um, you know, Nick stressing rightly there that the the Premier League door into Europe looks pretty much like it's firmly shut, and all legs are now in in the Europa League. I mean. Just how big a game is this for Arteta? He's obviously had an FA Cup final. I know he had those big games. Think of the Chelsea game back in in December when he was under pressure. But this, for me, feels absolutely massive for his sort of time at Arsenal, particularly given it's Unai Emery coming back to his old club. Yeah, I thought it was telling. I asked Arteta in the post-match press conference tonight about, you know, has this result basically meant it's now impossible and put all the pressure on Thursday night? And, you know, he normally... Black bats that and says, you know, while it's not mathematically impossible and blah, blah, blah. But I thought it was telling on Friday, he almost admitted now that I think he knows and he probably has known for a while it's not going to happen in the league. His players probably know now as well, given the gap. And yeah, Thursday's massive. You mentioned the FA Cup final there, but we're talking about millions and millions and millions of pounds riding on on this tie. I know you've then got to get to the final and win it, but I, I just think in terms of one game, this one is massive because... I'd fancy them at the Emirates, to be fair. If they can get a decent result on Thursday night, I'd fancy them in the second leg. But if they go to Villarreal and, and, and slip to a 2-0, maybe, you, you know, you, I could see that happening. I saw only saw the highlights, but they gave Barcelona a good run for their money at the weekend, Villarreal. You know, man sent off and still, you know, still only lost 2-1. And as we were saying, you put this current Arsenal team against Barcelona, who I know have slipped a little bit recently, but... You wouldn't you wouldn't put back back against it those four nil five nils we remember from years ago. So I think it's a strange one because it's everyone's putting it on the this Unai Emery factor, aren't they? And I think that's because for what a decade at least we probably haven't really seen Villarreal as this European heavyweight of a club. Obviously, there's history with Arsenal in European competitions, semi-finals and things, but they they've emerged through this competition. We know Unai Emery is the master of the of the Europa League. And like you say, it's great narrative for us. It's great narrative for the fans. But one man who it's not a great narrative for, if things don't go their way, is, is Mikel Arteta. 
Right now, as the game wore on 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 Friday night, it quickly became apparent that the biggest story wasn't going to be the match, but instead a tweet sent from Spotify founder Daniel Ek. Um, he posted it sort of just before the game kicked off, and he mentioned in there that he was a boyhood Arsenal fan. He was ready to throw his hat into the ring if KSE wanted to sell the club. Um, the story is very much escalated from there. Matt Law of the Telegraph deserves a lot of credit. He's been at the front of it throughout uh, these past three days or so. It was on Saturday, Matt reported that the interest was genuine. It wasn't just a tweet sent from Eck, you know, looking to, to pander a bit of good PR. And then on the Monday morning, it was also reported first by Matt that Eck had recruited Patrick Vieira, Dennis Bergkamp and Thierry Henry to join in the consortium looking to buy the club. Now, Nick, you've also been covering the story. And if you could just give us an update on where we are and, and what the situation is as we speak now on, on Monday afternoon. Well, um, first thing to say is um, this this is real, very real, I think. Um, and Matt Law obviously has, has reported fantastically on this across um, the weekend. And I've, I've since stood up something very, very similar, which is that um, Daniel Ek is genuinely interested in buying the club. I understand that on the back of his tweet on Friday, he, he then started making... Um, making inquiries over the weekend and has brought together um, the three legends that we've mentioned, Henri Vieira Bergkamp, um, in a capacity that I, I think will probably be more sort of advisory than than financial. Um, and going from there, I, I think the plan from the group at the moment would be to be in a position where they could formalise some kind of offer by maybe this time next week, um, early, early next week. And we'll see what happens, but um, the interest is is serious. I I don't think it's a PR stunt. People people close to it tell me that he can afford it, or that you know he he um, he may have access to resources that mean he can afford it. Whether that means you could stump up two billion to two and a half billion, which is a figure I, I have heard um, to interest the Cronkies, is is another matter, but. This is definitely on as far as they're concerned. We'll see how far it goes. And what I don't want to do is sit here and tell people it's going to happen because it's a very, 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 very early stage, I, um, I would say. I'd also add that it's quite unusual to see something like this played out initially over social media. Um, I was doing a story on another takeover, lower down the leagues a, a few weeks ago, and, and someone said to me, the best takeovers are the ones you don't hear about until you know they happen or if not the day before um so i don't necessarily think it is beneficial in one way that this looks as if it could play out quite publicly on the other hand you've got this pressure that's building on the conkeys already which we've spoken about manifested in the protest on friday night and all, all kinds of other activity on social media and, and that kind of thing now, if, if supporters hear that these three guys and, um, are teaming up with, you know, a, a leading tech guru, if, if that's not the wrong thing to, thing to call it, um, then they're going to be excited and the pressure is going to start ramping up to make something like this happen. Um, will it happen? Again, long way to go, but there's something in it, definitely. These guys are interested, they are on board, they they have been in communication with it, who is trying to pull it all together. And I would say at this point, let's see what they can come out with in the next week to 10 days. I think that will be very key and it will be interesting. Mm. I mean, Mark, Nick, Nick hints at it there, but obviously we've got a long way to go. And, and to be fair, even 
even Daniel Ek in his tweet on Friday night said, you know, made the point if KSE want to sell. And I think that's going to be the big question, isn't it? Because, you know, they can have all the money they want these guys, but if, if Stan Kroenke doesn't want to sell Arsenal and he doesn't normally want to sell his franchises, we should point out, then they're going to really struggle here to get a deal over the line. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it, it takes two to tango, as the old saying goes, doesn't it? I also slightly worried that my Spotify is about to go up to £20 a month. But um, I was talking to... Somehow. This is what, <laughs> is this what happens. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of the show, James Ollie, earlier on, who made a great point. Uh, we think they were, you know, they were slightly rattled when Usmanov tried to buy them out. I think they, they ultimately turned it down, but I think there was definitely thoughts that, you know, is this the time to get out? They will only have been exacerbated, won't they, recently when you look at it's a much less attractive asset these days with a team that's falling down the league and needs investment. We touched on the squad depth and everything earlier on. Bring all that into it because that's coming, that's coming out of the money, your money at the end of the day if you buy the club. You know, they're not in the Champions League. The fans, as we saw on Friday evening, don't want them. Whether that matters or not, who knows? But that, and then this Super League, you know, this. And again, I'll come to James Ollie, who said it's their end game, isn't it? Their end game has been taken away. They thought this comes in, the fans don't really matter. We've seen that that's proof, and and we can start recouping some of this money that the club's lost during furlough, uh, during COVID, sorry, and all things like this. That's gone now. That is completely gone. That option is off the table. So maybe Eck has come along at just the right time when there's enough cracks in the in the Cronkies' belief that oh, keeping a continuation of owning Arsenal is the wrong thing for their for their business portfolio. And if he has, then he might just be able to pull it off, especially as Nick points out, when you've got three men on board, you know, two of which you've got statues outside the Emirates that had anti cronky signs hanging off them on Friday night. So it might be perfect. Yeah, I, th- I think those three legends is, is a really interesting development in the story because, I mean, I hate to come back to the Super League and it's dead and as everyone sort of tells you on Twitter, but a big part of that was it wasn't really sold to people. There was no sort of PR around it. There was no one explaining the vision, you know, whereas with this takeover bid, you know, I don't know what Daniel Elk is like as a, as an orator, as a speaker, but if he's got three legends there who are basically going to be the front of this campaign, that to me, Nick, seems like a very shrewd idea to a fan base who are disillusioned with the owners. If you come and say, look, these three legends have spoken to this new owner. We can vouch for him. He's going to do the right thing for the club. That seems a very, very shrewd move. It's an incredibly shrewd move. And how quickly, by the way, has has he moved to get the maybe the three biggest imaginable names on board? It's a very powerful force. And on paper, you know, t- taking away completely what I think the chances may or may not be of it happening, it would appear to be a marriage made in heaven. You've got Again, a, um, a tech giant, very, very well off, very um, quite trendy and modern, focused on user experience and that kind of thing. But then you've also got, as you mentioned, the three legends who also, I, I think it's fair to say that group would would have a lot of access to other senior, maybe ex-Arsenal people, if, if they ever wanted to bring one or more of them back in, into the fold. So, so I think... Um, you could have that marriage between authenticity and tradition, and 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 that and and that kind of thing, um, with something quite exciting and modern and a brand. Much as I always hate using that word in conjunction with football, that most fans can can recognise. That's quite a youthful brand as well. So honestly, when when it all hits you in the face, you think, "Wow, this is actually potentially a very potent 
combination. So the question now, I think, is have they got the money and the wherewithal to put together a package that might tempt the clunkies? And again, I am told they have. So let's see. (laughs) (laughs) Mark, I'll give you the the last point on this. Um, I mean, we've spoken on this pod before about challenges Arteta's had to deal with, obviously, you can talk about the pandemic. You can talk about getting a Bamiang to sign a new deal, Saka trying to get into new deal, everything with Gwenduzi. He's had the Super League now behind his back. And now he's got a takeover talk rumbling on as he prepares for the Europa League semi-final. I mean, how do you think Arteta will play this? And can you see it having any impact on the squad? Or do you think it's going to be an outside influence that they can detract from? First of all, for such a young man and such an inexperienced manager, I... I think he needs applauding, really, especially for the way he fronted up to the media last week after this Super League nonsense all broke down. I know we all said, you know, why aren't we hearing from Vinay? Why aren't we hearing from the Cronkies directly to us, obviously? But Arteta came in there and was absolutely on point. He made all the points. The media team deserved praise as well, I think, because they let it all flow. They let him speak. He was clearly happy to speak. And that just says to me is he's a man who will happily take this on his shoulders to keep it away from his players. He'll, he'll deflect as much of it as he can. You know, the fact it's genuine, probably in a, in a strange way, is less of a, of a distraction to the players than if, if it was just, you know, I don't know, that's Piers Morgan said he wants to buy the club and he's got Kim Kalstrom and Rio Miachi as alongside him. You know, that's that kind of, you know, if, if that's only going to become a 10 a penny thing that every Arsenal supporting millionaire or billionaire is, is going to put their hat in the ring to x phrase but the fact it's genuine you know may, maybe Arteta's actually thinking in the background this this could be good for me you know he's, he's back to the owners ever since he got that job but to have someone who come in and might put their hand in their pocket and give him a bit more to spend and a bit more to play with I, I think he might be happy about it and like you mentioned there he's got a massive game on Thursday night I don't think this will impact on it whether whether they'll get the result they want or not and he certainly won't admit it afterwards if it has Maybe he'll just play VAR again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we can we can all agree there's going to be a mad scramble when Arteta probably in five years' time agrees to a book deal about his time at Arsenal. I think every journalist is going to want to write that because it's been a hell of a story so far. That's all from today's podcast. Uh, our next episode is our fifth special and focuses on the WSL title-winning side as ending the seven-year wait lands on April 29. But until then, stay safe.